All right, church, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath your seat, uh, and that is our gift to you. So if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home uh, with you and read that on your own. If you're kind of new to Christianity or uh, checking out who Jesus is, we'd invite you to really begin reading in the book of John if you want to understand who Jesus is. So please take uh, that book uh, home with you. So we've been doing a series this year called The Story. And so we're kind of going through chronologically the Bible as it unfolds, understanding who God is and how His story uh, really informs our stories, that our lives make much more sense when we see them in light of who God is and what He has done, is doing, and will do in the world. That ultimate reality is found in knowing God. And so as we kind of make our way here, kind of on the halfway point of our year, uh, we're in the Old Testament. We've been looking at kind of a series within the series, looking at the life and the ministry of Solomon. He was a king of uh, the people of Israel. Uh, and at Solomon's rule and reign, it was kind of the high watermark for the people of Israel. That they have a people, they're a people in a place for the purpose, and they have a temple being built. And they're, at, they're kind of at peace, and they're not really fighting, and they have wealth and, and, and excess. And it's a good season of of, for the Israel's history, but we also looked at last week of what real worship is and what the folly of our rebellion is like when we turn our eyes away from the one true God and look to anything else in this world. And we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's kind of journey. He started so well, and when he turned his eyes away from the Lord, he went out to this world looking for something that was going to fulfill the emptiness that is this life apart from God. And the assessment of Solomon at the end of his life was everything under the sun apart from God is meaningless. It's a breath. But the end of, and the whole duty of man is to fear God, have a right view of God, and to do what he says. It's worship that we were created for worship. And as the story unfolds, you're going to see this picture. I hope you guys have been reading uh, along with us. But we've seen the people of Israel now because of Solomon, his refusal to bow his knee to King Jesus because of his, his refusal to repent and turn back to God. God says, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you. And we've seen this divided kingdom now. So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We'll talk about that more at length as we progress preaching through uh, the Old Testament. We'll talk more about uh, what that means and how that's going to work for the people as we see it unfold. But for today, we want to see that now this kingdom has been divided and there is a downward cycle of rebellion you're going to see that every king they rise up and they're going to drift farther and farther away from god and what he's revealed in his word and as a result the nation is going to continually to go more and more into turmoil and so i want us to i have you in first Kings chapter 16 we're going to begin reading these uh in verse 30 three verses just to kind of set up the context of where we're going to be uh this morning notice the spiritual climate of where this story is this morning. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is another false god. And Ahab, notice this, 
did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a big statement. That this King Ahab is so wicked, and he's in such rebellion, that he's done more to provoke the Lord to anger than anybody before. So it's in this dark climate. Get, get this. The, king, the most powerful man of that day is one of the most wicked men that has ever lived. And as a result, the nation is going further and further away from the things of God. It's a dark climate culturally that we're seeing this story uh, unfold. So chapter 17, verse 1, the first part of that, we're introduced to a character. Let's read uh, this first little bit. As he just kind of drops in out of nowhere onto this dark, bleak, dismal, rebellious scene. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Just stop reading right there. It's out of nowhere this guy drops in. I mean, most of the time as we read, we've seen like there's some like lineages and like background information and history. And it's just in the middle of all of this unfolding, we see this guy named Elijah just drop right into the story. Uh, And in the original language, this, this verse actually says, now spoke Elijah. So this is this guy that comes out of nowhere and he's speaking. So where, where, who is this cat? Like, where is he from? What's he doing? And we do know that the name Elijah means Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And, and in that day, your name meant something. And so you can almost see the providence of God at work, that what we're about to see as this story unfolds, as we look at the life and ministry of Elijah, is that that is what he's going to do. He's going to put on display that Yahweh, the Lord, the, the God of the Bible is God. Against all the false gods, against all of the wickedness, there's one God. There's one Lord, and there's one God who's worth our worship today. Even his name is characterizing this. And so as we kind of unfold, we've got to understand something about Elijah, about the role that he's, that he's fulfilling in Scripture. Elijah is a prophet, okay? He's a prophet. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen prophets unfold throughout Scripture. Uh, a couple of really notable ones that we've seen. Uh, Moses, way back, and you know, we read in, uh, in January, we read about this guy named Moses. And Moses is kind of the first official prophet uh, of of the Bible. He's kind of the one that fulfills all the roles of the prophet. You guys remember the story of David where he sinned and had committed murder and he's hiding all this and Nathan the prophet comes before him and tells the story and sticks his finger in his face and says, David, you are the man. You guys remember that? He's a prophet. So there's been prophets all throughout the Old Testament that we've been reading and Elijah is another one uh, of this office of a leader in Old Testament Israel. And so I want us to kind of just take a second and talk about what a prophet who a prophet is, the role of the prophet, because as we continue to read the Old Testament, we're going to interact around prophets a lot. I mean, you're going to read guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and all these guys. They're prophets that are before the Lord. So who are they? What's the role? We never make sense of the rest of the Old Testament if we don't understand what's going on in this story and really the story um, as, as it unfolds in the Old Testament. So the role of prophet. Here's what a prophet is. A prophet is one who is called by God. So he has a calling on his life to speak on behalf of God to the people. So you've got to understand this. Prophets are the ones who hear directly from the Lord. There's a calling on their life, and they're the ones that have direct access to God to hear from the Lord and then go and say, thus says the Lord. You're going to see that phrase a lot as you read the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. So they're not coming on their authority. They're coming on the authority of God. They're speaking on behalf of God to the people. 
But here's the message of the prophets. So we're going to see this in Elijah. You'll see this as it unfolds. Each prophet, God's going to raise up a prophet in a different cultural setting to different kings, calling out different sins. But here's the theme throughout all prophets as it, as it unfolds. You ready? Yahweh is God. He is God. And He has pursued you in a covenant to be a people, to be like Him and to enjoy Him. And you have broken the covenant. <laughs> You have rebelled, and each prophet is going to have their own, they're going to call out specific sins of how that happened. But you, you have broken the covenant against Yahweh. So here's the message of the prophets. Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from this rebellion. And turn from the pride that would cause you to live apart from God and trust Him. Lean into Him. Re- go back to God. So you have broken covenant. Repent. And if you will, there's restoration. That God is a loving God. And if you will turn back, He will forgive and He will restore and He will reconcile. But listen, if you do not repent, then judgment is coming. We, saw, we see this throughout the Old Testament. That, that judgment will come if you refuse to turn and repent before the Lord. And even if you do not repent, that there's hope of future restoration. Guys like Isaiah says, Man, they're coming to get you. You're going to be in captivity because you are stiff-necked and you're hard-hearted and you refuse to turn your face back to the Lord. And so judgment's coming. But listen, there's going to be one coming as a rescuer who will be the Redeemer, who will save you from this. So even in our rebellion, there's hope of one to come, of a future restoration. And we know, seeing the whole story unfold, that Jesus is the true prophet. He is the one who comes on behalf of God, speaking on behalf of God with a message of what? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember, John the Baptist is is making that way. And so Jesus is the full and real and true final prophet. The author of Hebrews would tell us that long ago we would listen to the prophets, but in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Spoken to us through his son. And so Jesus is the real prophet so why do you why Derek, why are you going through all that it's a cool little story it's great thank you for the background on prophets in the old testament here's why because jesus came and fulfilled this message and made a way for this hope and this restoration to be possible listen this is the message for the church today although the office of prophet is not is no longer really in, in effect we speak on behalf of god with the authority of god's word not in our opinions and we stand with god in the midst of dark cultural settings. And we say, Yahweh is God. He is Lord. And we have sinned against Him. We have turned from Him. And if you will repent and turn, there's love. And there's grace. And there's forgiveness. And there's restoration. If you will follow King Jesus. And listen, that's no matter what, what background you come from, no matter if you're religious or irreligious, homosexual, heterosexual, no matter what race, ethnicity you may be, no matter if you're poor or rich, it does not matter. It is available to all people. All people. It is absolutely inclusive in that regard. All can come and find life and forgiveness and hope in Jesus. But it is also one of the most inclusive, exclusive religions in the world that says, no, 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 but you have to come repenting. You have to come and say, no, Jesus is Lord. It's for everybody. No one's exempt. But man, it is about repentance and belief in Jesus. This is what it means to be Christian. This is reality. It's reality for the church today. And that is not resting in our opinions. It's not the Southern Baptist thing. It's not because we're here in church talking this. This is, we are convinced and we believe that this is from the Lord. He has spoken. And we say, not 
what we think, but thus says the Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. Be restored and reconciled to him. Now listen, I want to just pause here and just take a second to address some of the things that are going on in our world. Uh, I mean, we see just the, the, the threat of terror going on. We see the racial charge in our world and all of just that's going on. And, you know, like in places like Charleston, we see that and we weep. We weep and we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, fix this. Make this new. Like, this is not the way it should be, right? Have you, have you felt that? The last couple of weeks, we've seen this on the news. This is the culture that we're living in. And the most recently, Friday, with the Supreme Court's decision to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. I mean, they're, they're redefining marriage. And so we as a church, we say, you know, we, we disagree with that. We, we hold to the biblical charge of what marriage is. We do, and we will stand with, with the Bible in our hands and on our knees and saying, our culture is changing. They're taking steps away farther and farther from God, much like what we see in this story. This is not new to America. This has been true throughout humanity, a rebellion and a turning and a necessity for the people of God who have know the grace of God to stand and say, no, this is what God has for you. This is the grace I've been shown. I want to show you that. So in this culture, it is imperative for us to have a greater resolve than ever before. And listen, this is not a political platform. This is a gospel platform that says, man, we will stand and we will believe. But listen, one of uh, uh, leaders in evangelical Christianity, his name is Dr. Russell Moore. He leads the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission up in Washington, D.C. I'd really invite you to check out their website. They have great resources He said a statement after Friday's announcement. I just want to share that with you. He says, listen, the Supreme Court can make a lot of decisions, but they cannot put Jesus back in the grave. He is sovereign and he is Lord. And listen, we don't see this and go, this is not a time to be panicking. This is not a time to be angry and bitter. This is not a time. Listen, we'll continue to be faithful. This is just a step that's continued to to happen in our culture. We've seen a degradation and we just stand up and say, listen, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. We're going to preach the Bible. We're going to love God and love neighbor. And I pray that we will model what marriage looks like in a biblical way. There's too much sin even in the church of what marriage looks like. It's not just out there. Let's not get in that self-righteous thing that all the world is out there going in sin. We have sin that we need to repent of and say we repent and we turn before the Lord. And say, God, would you do this in us? And would you let us model what it looks like to walk with Yahweh, that Yahweh is God. And so we say, listen, we will not shirk from holding up the Bible. We will stand boldly with God and say, this is what marriage and this is what life looks like. But listen, we say so, we say truth with a Christian accent. We say it the way Jesus would say it. We say it with love. We say it with tenderness. We listen well. We love our neighbors. And so I want to challenge all of us as the church that not just in light of this decision Friday, because that shouldn't surprise us. That's been going that way. So nothing, everything has changed and nothing has changed all at the same time. But in light of this culturally charged darkness, leverage it for the glory of God. Engage in conversations with people as things about race and terror and fear and sexuality and all these things that are just on people. They're talking about it. Let's not be silent. But as we engage and share the gospel and what, how the gospel infuses and speaks into these areas, do so with grace. Do so humbly. Do so uh, trusting the sovereignty of God and His providence. And do so as one who has been forgiven of much. Not as one to say, hey, we've got it all figured out. Be like us. But no, no, no. We are just as much sinners as you are. 
Amen? And we have, been, have experienced the freedom and grace of Jesus, and we want you to know the love and the grace of Jesus as well. We extend a hand of friendship and love, and this, these are days to live on mission like never before. The darker the circumstances, the brighter light shines. So shine the light of the gospel. That's where our culture is, and let us go humil- humbly but boldly to love people, just as we see happening here in First uh, Kings chapter 17. So the providence of God has led us here this morning. So let's keep reading verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, this wicked king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. I just want you to, to picture this, okay? Like, He's coming up, this, this guy's coming onto the scene, Elijah, and he looks at the most powerful, wicked man of that day and says, it's not going to rain for a really long time until I say so. I mean, that's very presumptuous, right? He's being bold in, in doing this. So before we kind of look at this in, am- in amazement of the Old Testament and say, man, what's going on with this guy? I wish I could be like that. I love what James chapter 5 says. The words will be on the screen. So I want us to see what James says about this story. He uses this story as an illustration for us in verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man with a nature like ours. He wasn't a super Christian. (laughs) He wasn't some, you know, different person. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain rain on the earth so this normal everyday guy is praying these bold fervent prayers and standing boldly in the midst of a dark cultural rebellious climate so what i want to say is how did he do that what's the fuel in the engine that causes you to pray prayers like that that causes you to be bold like that well i think there's three things we'll run through these really quickly number one he's resting in the word of god He's resting in the Word of God. He's not doing this because he's kind of upset at Ahab and that he just wants to say, you know what, it's not going to rain for three years. He is absolutely claiming on to the promises of God, that God is a God of covenant, he's a God of promise, and he says if you, he's trusting in something bigger than him and his opinion. He's resting on the Word of God. He has a confidence in the Word. Do you have a confidence in the Word of God like that? Second, he's exposing the false gods of that day. So what I love about Elijah, he's not just calling out sin to be sin. He is doing that, but he's, specific, he's speaking specifically into their idols. So we just read about Baal, right? You guys know what, who Baal was? He was a false god of that day, and Baal was kind of known as the nature god. He was the god of rain and god of harvest, and they saw Baal as this idol worship that if we make penance to them, and the way they worship uh, that God was really the sexual, child sacrifice, all this just wicked stuff to appease this God to make it rain and to, and to, to live and have harvest and crops. And so what I, Elijah is saying here is specific. That this, this, what he's praying on behalf of the word of God is a specific directive against the false gods of that day. So this, against your God who makes it rain, I'm going to say if Yahweh, the one true God, says no rain, it is not going to rain. Yahweh is bigger and better, and He is the one true God. There's no God like Him. He's just exposing the direct idols of that day. So as we talk about what it means to live on mission, listen, we can call people out and say, you are in sin, and that is right. But a good missionary sees the idols of the culture and sees the idols of that day. So what are people worshiping around us? 
What are, what are we tempted to worship? What are the false gods that we're tempted to look to to find worth, significance, validation, and approval? And we look at those and we speak the gospel into those specific sins. So in a culture of religion, that we bow down to what we do for God, what is the, how does the gospel speak to that idol? How does it show the folly of all the things that we worship? Know how the gospel impacts all of our false gods that we tend to worship. That is what good mission is. We see that exemplified in Elijah. Third, though, he's zealous for the glory of Yahweh. We've already kind of said it before, but he says that as the Lord lives, the God of Israel, it's directly linked to the name of God. Not Elijah, not a nation, but him. Later on, as we're going to see this story, as, as he's praying for God to come through miraculously, he says, God, I'm asking for you to do this, not to make much of me, but that these people might know that you are the Lord. His prayer is specific about the glory of God. So let me just pause before we move on and ask a question. How is your prayer life? Is it non-existent? First of all, I mean, are, are you praying desperately before the Lord? And if you are praying, if we have a kind of a rhythm of that, well, I think we all would say we pray more, but I want us to really ask these honest questions of are we, on behalf of our country, on behalf of our city, on behalf of our friends, on behalf of our church, on behalf of the nations, going before the Lord and, and fervently asking Him to do things that are so much bigger than us. In the face of opposition, in the face of darkness, to believe God. Well, you say that's true of you. Or has your fervor, or is your prayers more just kind of these dead happenings up to God, or maybe they're just distracting, or maybe they're all about you? And so let me ask you some questions. Are you praying bold prayers that flow from God's Word? Tim Keller says it like this that prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started. So if we want to pray according to the will of God, pray the Word of God. With your Bible open, Praying these things to be true. Is that true of you? Second, are you praying prayers that are specifically on behalf of others' salvation? He's not just calling out people to call them out. He's calling to say, Lord, I want you to show yourself so that they will turn. Like I'm asking that it will not rain, not so it will be a cool display of power, but so that they will see and turn and be saved. And so if God were to answer all of your prayers in the affirmative from last week, how many people would be added to the kingdom this week? Are you praying on behalf of other people? Are you yearning for that to be true? Well, how about this? Are you praying prayers that are more about God's glory? Or are you praying prayers that are focused on your glory? Are you asking to make much of you? Give me this. Make this more comfortable. Provide for me in this way. Or are you praying, Lord, no, no, no. I want to see your name known. I want to glorify you in all of my life. And those are prayers that will move the hand of God and that, that God will hear and, and answer, we pray. And so I'm, I beg of you, especially here in the summer, some of us have some free time and some space, a little different than usual. Get on your face before the Lord and call out on behalf of our families, on behalf of our church, on behalf of our nation, on behalf of the city, that God would do something. Because listen, we can work hard, we can do all these things, we can come here and keep doing the religious activity, but if God does not breathe, and if His Spirit does not move, then we, we are hopeless. We're hopeless. All right. Elijah prayed a bold prayer, but notice how God answered it. Okay, so if we're going to pray these kind of prayers, I want us to have a, a right view of what might happen when that happens. Okay, let's keep reading in verse 3. 
It says, depart from here and turn eastward. And hide yourself by the brook Sharif, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Sharif that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. All right. Now, if it was me, I would expect God to answer a prayer differently than what he just did. So Elijah's trusting the word of God, zealous for the glory of God, and he's exposing idols, he's loving people. And listen, God answers his prayer. I would think, okay, we got some work to do. Let's go tear down some idols, you know. Let's go call out some sin. Let's go do something. And instead, God does the exact opposite. He doesn't say, here's what you're going to go do. He says, I need you to get away and go east and hide yourself by a brook. So think Bear grills kind of stuff. Like he's out living in the wilderness, right? And ravens are feeding him. Let's, not, let's just be honest. Ravens are nasty, scavenger. This is not, I mean, this is a miracle, but it's pretty gross. He's living off of, off of scavengers, and he's drinking water from a brook. Listen, that every day, it says that the brook dried up. So it's almost as if every day, the water level just keeps depleting. So here's this man of God. He's praying bold prayers, and the first thing God tells him to do is, I want you to isolate yourself from everybody. Be alone. Live in the middle of the wilderness sitting by a brook, being fed by birds that are nasty, and watching water, literally, your life source, go away day by day by day. Years sitting there in isolation like that. Now, that is not how I would want God (laughs) to answer my prayer. Okay? Think Castaway from Tom Hanks. Y'all seen that movie? You know, he like loses his mind talking to a volleyball for Pete's sake. I mean, like, you know, that's how it would be. Like just wasting away to nothing, beard going all gnarly, and just, just isolated. Like this is real life. Put yourself in this shoe. This is what happened. And I love that the word Sharif, this, this brook, you know what, what it means in the original language? It means cutting. Cutting. Like you cut something. And so it's as if God says, I've got to bring you to this place of cutting, to cut you away and to get you to a place that, you're, that you need me, that you're dependent on me. And so Elijah must learn three things. We'll move through these very quickly. He must learn that the presence of God is enough. Because he's about to go and stand boldly as the, against the most wicked people of that day. And he has to know that the presence of God is enough to sustain him. That if I am standing by myself in solitude, that who I am in God, who God is for me, that he is strong and he's able. He had to understand that the presence of God is enough. Second, he had to depend and trust fully on the provision of God. That if the birds don't come that day, guess what? We don't eat. (laughs) If the brook keeps drying up, guess what? We're going to die. He had to fully say, you know what? God, I'm yours. I'm depending on you. And I don't think that Elijah had trouble believing that in his mind. Because he's the one, he's praying these bold prayers. He's standing up before King Ahab. He's a man of faith. But listen, there's a difference between knowing that God provides and knowing God is what we need and knowing that God is everything. There's a difference. There's an intimacy. There's a a level of experiencing this that you can never get just with a head knowledge. That experience makes us to really grasp a hold of this in a real way. And lastly, he had to learn to be satisfied in the way that God provided. You know, it wasn't 
you know, a T-bone steak, you know, laid out there. It was whatever the birds brought him that day, and it was just a nasty, gross um, provision. So God was providing for him, but it probably wasn't in the best, most convenient way. And he had to learn to be satisfied that, God, I understand you're doing this, but I might not like the way that you're doing it. I might not like the way that you're doing it. And then, as we read, I'll, I'll skip this for the sake of time, but the, the next part of chapter 17 is that God calls Elijah finally and says, get up and go to this widow's house. You guys remember the story of this widow, that this widow is out in her yard collecting sticks, and she's going to make one more meal for her and her son, and they're going to die. And so he goes in, and he says this thing that God tells him to, hey, you wanna, I want you to make food for me first, the man of God, and then you can make food for the rest of your family. And this woman, was, it was a test of faith. It was this object of your faith that I don't know if any of you would do that. If I came to your house, and it's a famine, Katie, and I said, hey, we're, I'm hungry, feed me, and don't feed your kids. Like, I mean, think about the, the act of faith that that would be. But there's another point of need and dependence for the widow and for Elijah to say, do you believe that God is enough? That the object of your faith is, is really tested when you are faced with great need. Will you believe in the object of my faith? And do I put rest in what looks like, makes sense in my, in my person right here? Like I see I only have this much left. There's no way. Like it doesn't make sense. I'm going to trust that instead of trusting the word of the Lord. That can over, overcome even what it looks like in front of us. You have that kind of faith. What is the object of your faith today? What are you looking at right now? for hope and even in in a situation that looks bleak and dismal do you trust god first and though not to make it even worse then after this widow does that there was more than enough every day every day but then her son dies i mean and even in that moment if i'm elijah i'm going god i'm trusting you you know like you said you would provide for them now this, this boy's dead it looks like you're like you're not coming through and god uses elijah to do a miracle and raises the boy from the dead and so again god is again providing for him showing him that he is enough so as the story progresses let's jump over to chapter 18 verse 1 after many days the word of the lord came to elijah in the third year after many days so we learn from other passages it's three and a half years that there's been this famine so he has been in isolation by himself trusting the provision of god god's been shaping him all this time. See, we get frustrated if it's six weeks, you know, or five minutes that God isn't answering our prayer. Three and a half years of just waiting, trusting, being stretched, being cut. So I'll ask another question. What do we do when God's answers to our prayers sends us to the difficult periods of waiting? What do you do then when the way that God is actually going to work in your life is not in any way the thing that you would thought was convenient? What if he says, okay, I am going to answer this prayer, but I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to cut away all these things in you that aren't like me. I'm going to make you trust. I'm going to make you wait. And even though that waiting feels like I've left you and that the dark spaces, you're isolated, you're all alone. I don't know if that's what you feel like today. God, I don't know where the next meal is going to come from. I don't know if my marriage is going to make it. I don't know what that is for you, what your brook moment is, but we all have them. What do you do in those spaces? Have you been there? Are you there now? All right. As the story progresses, let's keep reading. Verse 17 of chapter 18. The time has now come to confront Ahab. Okay, so he's been waiting, but now the time has come for him to go and, and do what God's called him to do. So verse 17 says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, 
Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, this is a great question for us today, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So again, we see this, Yahweh is God. This is the purpose of all of this. Yahweh is the one true God against the false God of Baal. But I don't, he said they're going to do a test. So here's the test. So the false prophets, 850, were going to take a sacrifice, a bull, and put it on an altar. And they weren't allowed to use fire, okay? And says, I want you to pray before, to your God that fire would rain down from heaven and consume the burnt offering. So you guys are going to go do that, you false prophets, 850 of you. And then I'm going to go do that, the, the one prophet for Yahweh, the Lord. And I'm going to do the same thing, build an altar, put a bull on it, no fire, and we're going to pray to the one true God and ask him to send the fire down from heaven. And the one who answers by fire, he is God. It's a test it's to show off the glory of God. So let's read in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal, notice, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there's no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. What a picture of just the nature of our sin. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Notice this. This is in the Bible. I love it. Cry loud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Maybe your God's in the bathroom, okay? Or, or he's on a journey. Or maybe he's on vacation, you know? Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Elijah is literally mocking their efforts. And he's saying, listen, that your God is no God at all. He's kind of calling out things like, you know what? Your God is made in your image. He's just a man just like you. We are created in God's image, but this false God is made like you. He can't answer you because he's just like you. He has the same limitations. He can't be your savior. This God will not fulfill you. We worship a God who is limitless because we were created in his image. He's not created in ours. And this false God was silent. And we're about to see that our God is a God who speaks. A God who speaks and he hears. So not only did Elijah, so now it's Elijah's turn. Not only did he not use fire, but he douses it with water and buries these trenches around. And it's just this picture of making it even more humanly impossible. And then we read in verse 36. It says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. 
the Lord. He is God. So you see Elijah standing against all odds, 850 to 1, and he calls out on behalf of the glory of God, and God miraculously comes and shows himself strong to the point where they see who God is. But let's keep reading, though, because as miraculous as that moment is, I mean, think about that. You're there, and you're praying, and God just, fire just opens, the clouds open up, and fire just comes up and just consumes the burnt offering. I mean, think about that moment. But we know that the prophecy, listen, hang with me, was not just that that would happen, that there was going to be rain when he said so, right? So this is just kind of showing, I want you to show how foolish your false God is and how true our God is. But the story's not over, because verse 41 says this, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of the mountain, and he bowed himself, notice, down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said again seven times. Go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. I love that. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. All right. Here's what I want us to sit in this tension, okay? So he tells Ahab, There's a sound of the rushing of the rain. Remember? He said that before there was even a cloud in the sky. Did you catch that? He told Ahab, there's a sound of the rushing of the wind. And he gets up to the mountain, and he tells the servant, go look and see if there's clouds. <laughs> see if the rain's coming, you know? And, 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 and the servant comes back, and he says, there's nothing. You know, he's like, go again. <laughs> you know? And he goes again. And that happens seven times. By like the fifth time, I'm getting nervous. You know, like I'm getting nervous. But notice what Elijah's doing. I don't know. He doesn't say he's praying but he's bowed himself down with his face between his knees. And it's this picture that he's humbly submitting before his God. And it's this picture of God, if you don't come through, not only do I look like a fool, and they're going to kill me, but this is for your glory. I want them to know you. Show yourself strong. Here's the point. Sometimes there's a gap between our obedience to the promise of God and the outcome of the provision of God. So what do you do when you're in those moments? You've prayed, and God's doing this work in you, and you're obeying, and you're seeing God work, and He's promised that He's going to come through, and you're believing it, but you're waiting. Again, we see that in His life again. He's just in this gap that God's promised, but He hasn't showed up yet. And He had such faith to say, the, the rain is coming. And then what does He do? He just prays and humbles Himself before the Lord. What a picture of faith. What a picture of need that happens in our lives. And so listen, are you willing to press into prayer and trust even when God seems absent? Are you willing to keep calling out, keep holding on, saying, God, you promised, and I'm not going to let you go. And that's a beautiful picture of what faith looks like. So the next scene, as we continue in the story, we'll run through this very quickly, but Elijah is running from his life because Jezebel gets word that he slaughtered all these 850 prophets of Baal, and she's out to get him, and she says, I'm going to kill you. Pretty much. And so now Elijah, the same Elijah that just saw fire rain down from heaven, and that at his word, rain comes, is now hiding from it for his life in depression. So we read in verse 4 of chapter 19, it says, And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I love that this is just so real. He's experiencing God. 
And because now he's, he's like, God, I, I, now I trusted you, and you finally did come through. And again, it looks like, well, God, where are you? Now they're trying to kill me. God, what are you doing? Just take my life. It would be better if I didn't exist. Have you ever been there? Just so just tired of life. You know what? It would be better if I just didn't have to fight this anymore. That's real life. But notice, God's faithfulness to us is not based on our faithfulness to him. Because in, while he's sulking and doubting God and hating his life and everything and from his perspective is hopeless and futile, notice what happens in verse 7. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and he touched him and he says, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Meaning, I know this is too hard for you, but again, Elijah, I'm going to provide for you. Look back and see how God has shown himself faithful time and time again. He has not left you now, even though it looks dark. I know it's too great for you, but even when you're wanting to throw in the towel, God says to us, stop trying and start abiding. Start resting in who I am and who you are in me. Because in verse 9 of chapter 19, let's keep reading. So God says, this journey is too great for you. He's meeting his need. Then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. See the, the, the perspective shift? He's, he feels like he's alone. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said to him, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Go out and stand on the mountain. So get this. We're almost finished. He's doubting God again. You know what God says to him? Go up to the mountain and stand. I'm going to show you something about who I am. You guys remember the story? He stands at this mouth of the cave, and then a big strong wind came, right? A powerful display of God's power. And the word, God's word says, and God was not in the wind. And then a big earthquake came, and he says, God was not in the earthquake. And then fire again from heaven came. The Bible says, God was not in the fire. But then, but then in verse uh, Verse 12, it says, After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some translations, that still, small voice. And that, back down in verse 13, says, What are you doing here, Elijah? He asked them again, and Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Do you know what he does? He says, Elijah, you're not alone. I have a people. I am still on the throne. I'm still sovereign over your life. And you need a perspective shift in this moment to believe what you know to be true. And listen, it was not in the big displays of power. Because sometimes does God show himself by raining fire down from heaven? Yes, we just saw that on Mount Carmel. God shows himself in the big and the miraculous. But what he's teaching Elijah in this moment is that intimacy with God is in those quiet moments. It's not so much in the big mountaintop experiences, it's by the brook that we really experience who God is. So here's a statement. Intimacy with God is not just in the extravagant displays of power. It is in that, but it's not all that it is. It's in the still, silent moments. Here's a couple of ways this plays out, and we'll be done. True joy, listen, true joy occurs when we realign our expectations with reality. See, God does show himself when he's miraculously, you know, raising dead people and, you know, calling down fire from heaven. Like those are moments, yeah, God's on display. But what he's teaching Elijah is that's not all of life. Those were two moments that we read about in this man's life. The rest of his ministry, get this, 
was spent in isolation, was spent by a brook having to completely rely on God, and we just saw all of that. That was the norm for him. Not the the Mount Caramel moments where God's raining down fire from heaven. It was the moment where I'm hiding in a cave, fearful for my life. When I'm hiding in, in the middle of nowhere in a widow's home. That's normal life. And so true joy happens when we see life with a different set of lenses that we cannot expect for all of life to be on the mountaintops. I think so many of us walk around defeated. Listen, because you think that God has somehow abandoned you because you don't always feel something. Or because God is not displaying His glory like you think that He should in this moment. Or God, I'm asking for this. Why is this not coming through? But this is not the way God always works. Most of the time, God's working in the cutting. He's working in the quiet moments. It's not the displays of power. It's the still, silent moments. This is the norm, not the exception. And we're, listen, we can be so addicted to what's new and what's better and what's next that we miss God's activity now. That if we never plant ourselves and embrace these moments, you'll never grow to be this oak of righteousness for the Lord. Like if you keep uprooting a tree, it's never going to extend its roots out like it needs to do to have health. That there's, there's a consistency, there's a, there's a staying that needs to happen, an abiding with God. So here's the last statement, that fruitfulness and faithfulness are inseparable. If you want to experience the fruit in your life of, of knowing God and enjoying Him, you've got to be faithful. Even in the moments where he's cutting you, even in the moments where you're having to completely trust him and him alone, the key to change often is more of the same thing. More of the same thing. Remaining, abiding. That's why in John chapter 15, Jesus himself says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He prunes. He prunes cuts that it may bear more fruit some of you this morning listen we're we're done some of you this morning because you are experiencing these moments this brook moment where you're alone you're worried about god's provision you don't know what's happening around you you may think that god has cut you off well we're trying to say no no he's just cutting you back He's not done with you. He's working even in those moments. And he's cutting away at you to make you produce more fruit, to be more like him, to have a depth of intimacy that you will not know. Because listen, the Elijah on the mountain calling down fire from heaven would have never been there if he would not have been the Elijah by the brook. It prepared him to stand alone. It prepared him to trust. So God is doing that in you. So he, he says that he's, Jesus is the vine, meaning he is the unlimited resource. And you're just a branch. You're the limited resource. And you need to stay connected to Jesus. To abide in him means to remain, to dwell, to make your home in, to stay, to stay. And sometimes God's going to remove everything else around us that's keeping us from those moments so that we can become more like him. See, most of us don't want God as the vine dresser, as gardener. We don't want God to be cutting around on us, you know? We want God to be more like a genie. You know, God, I'm asking you, come fix this. I don't want to be by the brook. I don't want these moments. I don't want to be running for my life. And, but yet, that's just reality. And it's in those moments that God is speaking. It's in these moments that He's shaping us. So, if we resist the monotonous and the hurt and the pain, we will miss the miraculous. It's in those spaces that He's working. If we resist the monotonous, we will miss the miraculous. So if you'll bow your head and close your eyes. Uh, Team, come on up.
um, we just want to lean into the space and say, God, we need you. We need you to come and we need you to show yourself strong for us and that we don't have what it takes. And that so many of us are just living these kind of lives. That we're wanting to believe you. We want to trust you. But these moments of waiting, these moments of cutting, these moments of need uh, keeps us from really understanding who you are. And so we, we, we ask again, Lord, we repent of our folly of running away from you and asking for you to do things that are against your will in us. You are working even in these moments. So the God on the mountain is the same God by the brook, and we trust him. We trust him. So wherever you are this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we would love for you to understand what it means to follow him after the service. We would love for you to, to stop trying. And maybe God has brought you here to say all these moments in your life has been bringing you to this point to see your need for a Savior because that's our greatest need. But for the rest of us, what is your need this morning? What are the places and areas of your life that you're tempted to not believe God? You're tempted to think that he's cut you off when he's really just cutting you back and so you'll produce more fruit. And it's in these moments that he's working it out in us to be who he's called us to be in the moments that he uses us to display his glory in a special way so we lean in and we trust. And so as we sing this song, Bless the Lord, Oh My Soul, we're asking, it's a prayer for us to say, Soul, we're going to praise God. Even if it's in the moment of waiting, even if we don't, it doesn't make sense, we are going to, Make our soul say true things to who God is. So let's sing this out together.